When one contemplates the solemn commemoration of the United States dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and what that event means to our nuclear-drenched lives today, it helps to hear a genuine expert like Daniel Ellsberg, the man who released the Pentagon Papers and recently published the acclaimed memoir, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, as he provides perspective to a crowd protesting at the gates of the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory just north of San Francisco. And when Ellsberg says... From one point of view, of course, it's wonderful we're all together again after all this. And the other point of view, we have to say it hasn't changed. We haven't stopped it. It's still going on. From the other point of view, the bomb hasn't exploded on people during that time. And I think that people like this here and others were absolutely critical to that moratorium. Well, when you hear Daniel Ellsberg tell us that maybe our efforts have not been in vain, it shows that maybe there are things we can do to cool down that seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a commemoration of the atomic bomb blast that decimated Hiroshima and Nagasaki 73 years ago. We'll hear from activist Mary Leah Kelly on the annual protest at the gates of nuclear weapons research facility, the Lawrence Livermore Labs. We'll hear the speech that Daniel Ellsberg gave at those gates on the anniversary of the bomb being dropped on Hiroshima. And then a moving tribute upon passage of the United Nations Treaty on the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons by Setsuko Kurlo, a hibaksha, someone who was in that atomic blast. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than anyone tweeted from the White House this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 7, 2018, and here's the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In the U.S., an explosive story out of KPBS in San Francisco. Former Nuclear Regulatory Commission Chief Gregory Yasko says San Onofre's nuclear waste may never be moved. 26 cans of highly radioactive waste, each containing a Chernobyl's worth of radioactivity, have already been buried immediately adjacent to the Pacific Ocean. In New Mexico, the state attorney general, Hector Balderas, has concluded the state cannot legally stop Holtec, a New Jersey-based company, from building a nuclear waste storage facility in that state. He cited portions of the Atomic Energy Act of 1954, the Nuclear Waste Policy Act of 1982, and two court cases 
as providing the basis for federal regulatory agencies to preempt virtually any state involvement. New Mexico would be asked to store up to 10,000 shipments of spent nuclear fuel containing as much as 120,000 metric tons of high-level radioactive waste from nuclear power plants across the country, and the material would be stored just below the surface. In New Jersey, the Oyster Creek nuclear power plant is scheduled to permanently close as of September 17 of this year, But now questions are being raised about the company that has been created to deal with the decommissioning process, Comprehensive Decommissioning International, CDI. Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear has written an article about this, and we will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 372. In upstate New York, the Trump administration's Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, was at the Fitzgerald nuclear plant in Scriba, New York, and said, it's time to make nuclear energy cool again. Dude, nuclear energy was never cool in any sense of the word. New York environmental and consumer groups are calling on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to reverse his decision, made exactly two years ago, to force New York taxpayers, even those who opt into 100% renewables, to subsidize failing nuclear plants such as Fitzpatrick. This 12-year bailout is estimated to cost $7.6 billion, the subsidies amounting to approximately $1.3 million per day, And at present, writing the nuclear subsidies already collected from New York taxpayers under this program amount to over $644 million and counting. In Scandinavia, the unusually warm summer has increased seawater temperatures and forced some nuclear reactors to curb power output or shut down altogether, with more expected to follow suit. Reactors need cold seawater for cooling, but when the temperature gets too high, it can make the water too warm for safe operations. Same problem in France, where four French nuclear reactors, though French energy giant EDF, said the decision was made to avoid overheating the rivers. That's a bit dyslexic. So the next time a pro-nuker complains about renewables being unreliable because what do you do when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow, we get to ask, and what are you going to do when the waters prove too hot to cool down your nuclear reactors? And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has reiterated that country's position that it will not join the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Right, because it's not like Japan has any skin in the game when it comes to the wartime use of atomic bombs, right? To make it worse, Abe Baby was speaking at a news conference after attending the Peace Memorial Ceremony in Hiroshima on Monday, which is the anniversary of the U.S. bombing of that city in 1945. Abe did say that Japan supports the goal of eliminating nuclear weapons, but it will not participate in the treaty because its approach is different from the Japanese government's viewpoint. I can't even wrap my head around that. And that's why Shinzo Abe... On behalf of the people of Japan and the people of the world, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. We'll have this week's commemoration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in a moment. But first, I know you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide on Nuclear Hot Seat every week. 
verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for the information you get from this show, help us out, won't you? Send us a donation to help us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who want to make a big difference and are on a budget, on the website there's also a big green Donate button. This allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month, the same as you spend on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So, why don't you buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee every month? It may not seem like a lot, but $5 monthly donations are the mainstay of how we are able to keep going. So, please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running so we can continue to search out and share information that the nuclear industry would rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. Now for this week's feature which is a commemoration of the atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Demonstrations and commemorations took place literally around the world for the August 6, 1945 dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima and just three days later, on August 9, dropping of a second bomb on Nagasaki. We have three different audios for you this week. In the first... I speak with Mary Leah Kelly, who is executive director of Tri-Valley Cares, a 36-year-old group which works to strengthen global security by stopping the development of new nuclear weapons in the U.S. and promoting the elimination of nuclear weapons globally. Tri-Valley Cares maintains a special focus on Livermore Labs. Mary Leah and I spoke on Saturday, August 4, two days before the event which occurred yesterday, which may explain the future tense of some of our discussion. Future tense. Sounds like nuclear. Here's Mary Leah Kelly. First of all, tell us about Tri-Valley Cares, what it is and what it is dedicated to. Tri-Valley Cares is a community-based nonprofit organization here in Livermore, California. We are 35 years old this year. The acronym CARES stands for Communities Against a Radioactive Environment. We chose that name because it addresses both nuclear war and an exploded nuclear weapon and also the environmental and health impacts from the whole nuclear weapon cycle. Here in Livermore, we are in the location where the United States is designing new and modified nuclear weapons as we speak. There are only two places in the United States that design every nuclear warhead and bomb in the United States arsenal, and that's Livermore Lab here in Livermore and the Los Alamos Lab in New Mexico. Tri-Valley Cares now has about 5,700 members most of whom live around the Livermore Lab main site here in Livermore and its Site 300 High Explosives Testing Range near Tracy, California. 
And one of the unique things about Tri-Valley Cares is ever since our earliest days in 1983, we have always had independent-minded scientists and engineers who work at Livermore Lab and Sandia Livermore Lab across the street and who believe that there needs to be outside research and advocacy and in some cases also agree with us that we should be moving toward a nuclear weapons-free world. One of the things that Tri-Valley Cares is known for is creating a demonstration and a presence on the anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima on August 6th. What is the origin of that and what form is it taking this year? Tri-Valley Cares and allied peace and justice groups here in the San Francisco Bay Area put together this program every year. Conducting commemorations of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at Livermore Lab is uniquely powerful because in addition to looking backward at the U.S. atomic bombings, we look at the present and we look forward. And we are at the gates of one of the locations that is designing new nuclear weapons right now for future use. So we are able to make visible to the community and beyond the face of nuclear weapons and nuclear war fighting policies today. We are able to speak truth to power about the necessity to move to the abolition of nuclear weapons. We are there to commemorate the past, but also to say, stop now. Do not design Livermore Lab scientists, a new warhead for a new long-range standoff weapon, which is a sneak nuclear first attack nuclear weapon. We are able to say don't design a new interoperable nuclear warhead that will be so changed in its design that it may lead the U.S. back to nuclear explosive testing in Nevada in order to certify it. We're able to speak to what's going on at the laboratory today with power, with clarity, and to actually change the future. We're recording this on Saturday, August 4th, which is two days before the commemoration. And the show is going to be up after the commemoration as of the 7th. So we'll fill in that picture as best we can, but give us a vision as to what this year's event is going to consist of. I'm looking forward to this year's event. We're going to begin with a rally for about an hour and a half, and our featured speaker is going to be Daniel Ellsberg, who many of your listeners will know, both as the whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers in an attempt to hasten an end to the Vietnam War, but also, more recently, as the author of his really critically acclaimed memoirs, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. As your listeners may know, Ellsberg used to work for the Defense Department and for RAND Corporation and did actual planning and decision-making trees for nuclear war. So we're very much looking forward to his perspectives, his comments, He has participated in this event with us for many years, 
and he does plan to risk arrest at the laboratory gates. What would provoke a potential arrest at the laboratory gates? Following the rally, there will be a call to action, and there will be a march, a procession, about one-half mile from where we are at the laboratory fence to the laboratory west gate, which is, you know, visualized four lanes across, a huge gate, which on normal days employees come into and out of. And once we get to the gate, we are going to perform a traditional Japanese bond dance. We'll have a die-in, chalking of the bodies to commemorate those who perished and who became smudges after the atomic bombing. And at some point after that, laboratory security and the police will come out with an order to disperse. And those who choose will stay in their shadows or will go to the gate itself and will risk arrest. And Daniel Ellsberg is one of those who is willing to go and risk arrest. Yes, he is. We are expecting about 200 participants, possibly more. It varies from year to year, but there are scores of those participants who will choose to risk arrest, to put their bodies on the line, to prevent new nuclear weapons from happening on this solemn date. Who are some of the other speakers who are going to be there addressing the crowds? We are honored to have as our special guest speaker, Nobuaki Hanaoka. He was a baby when the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. He recalls as a very young child, his mother was always sick. His mother and his sister died soon thereafter, and he lost a brother some years thereafter to the lingering effects of radiation. And he will talk about his experience and also to put it in the context of the clarion call for nuclear weapons abolition today. Carol Hisaswe will come from Mothers for Peace in San Luis Obispo. We're excited to have her come and speak about the connections between nuclear weapons and nuclear power. I'm going to be saying a few words about the specific nuclear weapons programs going on today inside the fence line at Livermore Lab. We also will have Penny Opal Plant, who's going to talk about the connection between nuclear weapons and indigenous issues. And we're going to have Dr. Robert Gould from Physicians for Social Responsibility, who's going to talk about nuclear weapons in the context of global militarism. Fred Norman of Veterans for Peace is going to talk about his personal experience on alert with a nuclear weapon, one of those times when there was a mistaken belief that there was an incoming strike from the Soviet Union, and he was almost on his way to Vladivostok with a nuclear warhead that he was supposed to drop, and he's going to talk about what that did to him and how he became a peace activist. It is an amazing group. Um, professor Christine Hong is going to speak She's a professor at UC Santa Cruz and an expert on the Korean Peninsula. She's going to bring us up to date on that situation and offer a fresh perspective, often overlooked by the media, about the possibilities for peace and how it is the people and the leaders of those two countries in whose hands that resides. 
Trump, in my, at least in my view, and I believe in hers, is somewhat of a bystander to that event. And Jackie Cabasa, my friend from Western States Legal Foundation, is going to lead the call to action. The call to action is the culmination of the rally when we remind ourselves of why we are there, why we are at Livermore Lab on this day, and we get our banners, we get our signs, and we begin the march to the gates. This is an astonishing lineup that you have. It is really world-class in its content. What is the availability for people who can't get there on site to hear or watch, either through audio or video, what these people have to say? There are several opportunities. Genta will be doing a simulcast of the audio. Our friends at Ecological Options Network, Mary Beth and Jim, will be doing video. Tri-Valley Cares is going to be putting it all up on its website as soon as we get content. So we're going to be putting newspaper articles and photographs up, TV news up, KPFA radio up. All of that will be at www.trivalleycares.org unfolding, you know, in the day and couple of days following the rally and action. For those people who cannot get there and maybe cannot participate in any kind of live broadcast Mm -hmm. of it or podcast of it, what do you suggest we do in terms of a commemoration? I know I'm close to tears even contemplating what it is that we are commemorating and what it is that we are standing up for and up against. What do you suggest that we do? One beautiful thing about the peace movement in the United States is its diversity and in some ways its local roots. There are Hiroshima and Nagasaki commemorations happening in communities all across the country. Physicians for Social Responsibility has posted a calendar. The last time I counted, they had 71 commemorations across the country up on their calendar. Also, United for Peace and Justice and Abolition 2000 have a U.S. and international calendar up. I think that people, first and foremost, can find out what's happening in their community and support that. We get to use the power of our presence on the anniversary of Hiroshima to say never again. And that, I believe, is deeply meaningful and important. Additionally, folks can get free information about what's going on with nuclear weapons from Tri-Valley Cares. We have an electronic newsletter that's free. We have a quarterly paper newsletter that's free and a website that is updated regularly and we're a good source of information and particularly information that people can use with action alerts regarding for example the nuclear weapons budget and when policy initiatives come up and are debated so that we can help coordinate people's calls into their elected officials so that they amplify each other and have more power. And we also do letters to the editor and other things to reach out in our communities. So I guess the bottom line is be visible, be vocal, use your presence, use your voice, do what feels right to you. The only wrong thing to do at this period of history is nothing. 
What are some final thoughts or facts that you think it's important for us to understand? One shocking fact is that in the era of Donald Trump, the United States is embarking on a nuclear weapons program that will ultimately cost about $2 trillion over the next 30 years. This takes the Obama nuclear weapons program and puts it on steroids. This $2 trillion includes new warheads, new nuclear bombs, new delivery vehicles for those nuclear weapons, upgrades in the U.S. nuclear weapons complex to produce these nuclear weapons. It includes new ideas that Trump has that you would find, you will find in Trump's nuclear posture review that was released in February of this year. It involves new programs that are in the fiscal year 2019 budget request released by the Trump administration over the spring. It includes a modest rate of inflation, and that's how you get to $2 trillion over 30 years. This not only is dangerous in terms of its pouring gasoline on what was already a new international nuclear arms race, but it also represents a theft from all of our communities, a theft from our children, from our elderly, from health care, from schools, from the things on which we should be spending money. Try to think what $2 trillion is over 30 years on new and modified nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them to human beings the world over in an instant. Mary Leah, I can't be with you physically up at Livermore on Monday, but I will be with you in spirit, and may it be picked up by mainstream media and spread around the world as it will be by this program, Nuclear Hot Seat. And I want to thank you for the work that you have done for so many years that you're doing now and for being my guest during this very busy time setting up for the events on Monday, being my guest on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, and you're an integral part of this work, LeBay. Thank you for everything you do and for having me on as a guest. You're welcome. That was Mary Leah Kelly of Tri-Valley Cares. Daniel Ellsberg is best known as the man who released the Pentagon Papers, which helped to shorten the war in Vietnam. He recently published the acclaimed memoir, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. In this speech, delivered at the Livermore protest March for Nuclear Abolition and Global Survival, he draws parallels between climate change, Hiroshima, and the Titanic to the crowd protesting at the gates of the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory just north of San Francisco. This was recorded on Monday, August 6, 2018. Everyone needs community. Religion provides rituals that bind communities. I realized that I had a religion, nonviolent resistance to wrongdoing, to nuclear war, to wrongful interventions, and that that religion had rituals that bound my community together, getting arrested, civil disobedience, nonviolent actions. So we are having, from my point of view, a ritual today, and thank you for taking part of it in it with me. Now, from one point of view, of course, it's wonderful we're all together again after all this. And the other point of view, we have to say it hasn't changed. We haven't stopped it. It's still going on. From the other point of view, 
the bomb hasn't exploded on people during that time, and I think that people like this here and others were absolutely critical to that moratorium uh, that's lasted now 73 years since 1945. I want to talk today about the concept of time, time enough and too late. A year before he died on the day, uh, a year before he died, April 4th, Martin Luther, uh, 1967, Martin Luther King said about the Vietnam War, and he ended the speech, by the way, talking about nuclear weapons. There is such a thing as too late. That concept is very much with us now in connection with the climate catastrophe. These environmental scientists talk about the possible tipping point. Uh, and even before that, aware it's absolutely too late to change things. And even before that, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that would be uh, so much that catastrophic flooding and droughts and climate problems and so forth would be unavoidable, no matter what we did after that. It's not quite clear when either of those points is to be reached. Probably, in the New York Times uh, today, uh, giving a whole section to an article on climate, climate catastrophe, the way that the New Yorker gave a whole section on August 1945 to John Hersey's Hiroshima, starts in the first paragraph, as I read it, my wife made me look at it while, before, while the car was waiting for me to come here. If I read it correctly, it says it really is too late now to, to avoid quite catastrophic, disastrous change here in the way of water level rise and other, not too late to avoid still more catastrophic change if we change quickly, which we have not done. And under this administration, show no signs of doing. And then the, the quote of the tipping point where things really get out of control and we don't know exactly where that is. Have we passed it? We don't really know. I'm going to say it again, but I'll say it now. I call on all of us to act as if we still have time to change this. We don't know otherwise. It's impossible to say that it's too late at any given point. And to show what that means, I often think of the experience of the Titanic. Was it too late for the Titanic to survive when it set out from Southampton, was it? Hardly. In fact, at that point, the uh, captain of the ship had given an interview recently that a modern ship could not go down. They didn't even think it was possible. It was impossible. Some people thought that it would go down. That was wrong, obviously. Days into the voyage, on the day, its last day on the voyage, uh, they got six warnings of ice ahead. Almost every other ship in the vicinity, and there were many of them, heeded those warnings by going further south, away from a greater concentration of ice than had ever been seen in April before. They went south to miss that. Uh, others, later in the day, uh, in the face of the ice warnings, actually stopped dead in their tracks. And some went very slowly ahead, so they'd be sure to see them. The Titanic on its maiden voyage did none of those because Bruce Ismay, the owner of the line who was on the ship for the maiden voyage, was determined not just to make the schedule, but to break the schedule, to get to New York ahead of time, and thus advertised that this was not only the most luxurious and largest ship of its time ever, but the fastest. Something, by the way, it had not advertised, had not sold it on that point, but he was going to surprise people that it was fastest, and that uh, it contradicted 
the idea of going south, which would have slowed, slowed the course, or slowing course, let alone stopping. So it went ahead after getting, at the time that it was getting a uh, final signal that there was an iceberg straight ahead, the ship had one minute at that point, but it was going at full speed. Two knots short of full speed, actually. The only ship in the ocean that night that was moving ahead toward that ice with full speed, thanks to the influence on the presence of the owner. They still had a minute, and interestingly, that would have been enough time to miss the iceberg. It's never been fully explained why the first 30 seconds or so of that minute uh, were uh, not spent in uh, turning away from the iceberg. Uh, in fact, one story I, I just read, rereading it, was that the uh, helmsman had turned the, hand, the uh, course the wrong way at first and had to correct it. Another one, that at some point they didn't change course beyond what they had in thinking that they were going to avoid it. But physically, engineering terms, they could have avoided it at that point. If they had gone straight ahead into the iceberg, a couple of compartments would have flooded but the ship would not have sunk. It took five compartments flooding for the ship to sink. It would have crushed those first two compartments had they not swerved, not quite fast enough, to miss the iceberg. So it did have a chance there. Actually, I just read uh, another ship, a large ship, almost as large, had rammed right into an iceberg uh, just once before and had survived. What it did then was to try to turn, scraped the uh, iceberg, and because of low quality rivets and low quality steel to save money uh, that they had on the thing, pressing it buckled the iceberg and opened five compartments. Four could survive. With five, it was now going down. So one minute after seeing the iceberg, one minute after, it was too late. And nothing they could do then would keep that ship from going down. But up till that point, a first uh, engineer a, uh, or the second command on the ship who had heard the ice warnings could have said, ignore Ismay's interests here. You must move south. You must slow. You must stop. You must do what all the other ships did. Do not go straight ahead at full speed into that ice. And had they in effect mutinied or used uh, ultimate authority there to contradict the the word capitalist has been used here, but the, the capitalist interests that kept it going, the ship would have survived. And the thousand people who went down with it when it went down uh, would have survived. The people who jumped into the water uh, all died within uh, minutes from hypothermia. Uh, many of the lifeboats were only half full because they hadn't practiced it enough, thinking there was no danger, not worrying about it. And there weren't enough lifeboats on the ship for everybody on the assumption that the ship would, if anything happened of a problem, they would have plenty of time to move everyone back and forth between an them and another ship. So all these choices had been made over a period of time, not to have enough lifeboats, in order, by the way, to create space for the first-class passengers to have patios to look on, to sell them at very high rates for the first-class passengers, instead of having lifeboats on those spaces. So all these decisions had been made one after another over a period of years in designing this. And finally, as I say, it was not really too late until the ship had hit the iceberg. Have we hit the iceberg on climate? No one 
knows. No scientist purports to be able to say whether or not it is, in fact, too late at this point. On August 9th, a plane went over toward Kokura, Japan, as its first target. Hiroshima had been hit on the 6th. Its secondary target was Nagasaki. Secondary, by the way, because Nagasaki had not been on the list of, like uh, Kokura and Hiroshima and Niigata, of cities not to be firebombed so that they would show potentially the full effects of the mass murder to be committed on them, of the fire. Nagasaki was not on that list because it had been bombed only days earlier. There was already damage on it, so you couldn't entirely show just how dangerous the, war, the bomb was. But it was secondary target. They headed for Kokura, and to be sure that they got the maximum number of people killed, the bomb was to be dropped only on visual sighting. They didn't want to drop it off center, off ground zero, where they wanted. So they were ordered not to do it. And had they, um, for some reason, because of clouds over the target, had to go back with the bomb, they would have to drop it in the sea, lose that one of the two weapons we had, rather than try to land with it, either Iwo Jima or Okinawa. So they go to Kokura and find that because of a huge air raid on Yamata just nearby the day before, there was a lot of bomb smoke and fire smoke over Kokura, and they went back and forth three times over the city, which was doomed uh, otherwise, and couldn't see through the smoke. So they turned to Nagasaki, to second party. So it was not too late for Kokura, actually, when that plane took off. Kokura survived the war, as a matter of fact. Having not been bombed, it was on the list that had not been bombed. They went to, to Nagasaki, and there, uh, 49 seconds after the bomb was dropped, uh, Nagasaki was destroyed. But come back now to three days earlier. Hiroshima was the first target, had not been bombed, in part had chosen, by the way, because it had no serious military bases or industry, had some military, but not enough to put it on a priority for bombing earlier. So it would show, it would show the effects of the bomb. Plane arrives over the target at about 8.14, 8.15, and they do see, they didn't have enough clouds, they could see the aiming point, actually, in the center of Hiroshima, not the military base or the factories in the suburbs. So they were clear to drop the bomb. Nearly every history that you'll see, and I looked this up on Hiroshima today, uh, on Wikipedia today, says that the bomb was dropped at, and exploded, actually, at 8.15. The bomb exploded at 8.15. I was struck some years ago by a photograph which I saw just last night on a book that I happen to have, A History of the Peace Sign. This is the uh, peace sign, by the way, uh, if you notice, consists of two semaphore signals. It stands for nuclear disarmament. It was uh, made for the Aldermas in March by the Committee for Nuclear Disarmament in England. So there's a book on this. It has a picture of the very uh, specific Hiroshima watch that uh, I had seen earlier. There's a whole lot of them, and they all stopped 
at the same time, although they weren't all set at exactly the same time. These watches, by the way, were among the artifacts from Hiroshima that were not allowed to be shown at the Smithsonian at the time of the exhibit of the Enola Gay, along with a lot of things like sandals and pictures of silhouettes and so forth, because a little too homely, a little too human, uh, rather than an, uh, the mushroom cloud, which uh, is we're supposed to focus on, and not what was happening to the people underneath. Okay, this is a picture of a watch which I can't find. I'll just describe it to you. When I saw it, if you look at the watches, some of them actually do show 815. Apparently, they were, to move ahead here, uh, they were set a little slow. Because there were watches that strikingly, and I saw this in Hiroshima, I guess that's what I first saw it, were not at 8.15, it was just a little below that, it was like 8.16. Seemed odd. A lot of 8.16s, and that's what this picture shows. I finally found out, and some of you have heard me say this before, what that had to do with. The bomb was dropped by parachute so as to save the life of the crew in the plane, that they would not be destroyed by the blast themselves, give them a chance to move away this way, a special maneuver for bombs. Later, with tactical bombs that were uh, where the bomber was closer to the ground, they practiced in what they uh, called a high-altitude bombing. <coughs> pilot would come in like this and then loft the bomb this way, and the pilot does what used to call an Immelmann turn, move away this way as the bomb is going there, so as to get away from it in fast. The same motive, by the way, that is at the basis of what you heard just a little bit earlier, the long-range standoff uh, missile, which is intended, like an air-launched cruise missile, to allow the pilots to escape from the devastation they're causing on the ground with their bomb. And they do it by staying and from air defense. So they stay outside the circle of air defense and they send the missile in on a long-range standoff. The idea being, you know, no, no effort is spared to make it sure that the bomber can get away, come back home to something. That's the idea. So the bomb man at Hiroshima was dropped by parachute, three parachutes actually, to slow its descent and give the bomber the time to get away. And of course, as you've probably already heard, people on the ground at Hiroshima did not even have an air alert because the approach of one or two or three bombers, a couple observer bombers, was not thought to be an air raid, it was thought to be reconnaissance. So uh, they didn't expect danger from a single, from one, two or three bombers. In Nagasaki, an air alarm three days later was sounded and then the all clear was sounded, having decided that it was only one of several planes, they had a couple of observer planes, no problem. So people are out on the streets at around 8.15, going to school, finishing their breakfast, on the way to work, having just gotten to work, and not really fearing anything. From the example of Kokora, three days later, we can say that at 8.14, it was not quite too late for Hiroshima. If there had been enough smoke over Hiroshima, the bombers could have veered away and doomed some other city. So uh, their fate was not sealed at that point. But for a period before the bomb exploded, it was too late, even though people didn't know it. 
Nothing they could have done would have changed anything at that point. Uh, it was like the point when the iceberg actually buckled the plates on the Titanic for five of the compartments after which it was too late. It took 53 seconds for the bomb to drop. So the time uh, schedule of 8.15 is correct for the dropping of the bomb, but not for the explosion, which took place at 8.15.53. And during that part, then, I'm saying, history was divided into three parts around that time. And I'll come back to that a little. But, of course, as of 53 seconds later, the part we're living in now, the part where a city can be wiped out by one bomb, had begun 73 years ago. How many people here are older than 73? Interesting. Okay, so you all, like me, I'm 87, live for some years, I live for 14 years, in a world in which it was not possible for a city to disappear in a flash. It was not possible for a city to have the experience that people in Pakistan and elsewhere have now with respect to drones. That suddenly, from a source that they haven't even seen or can't even see, a flash comes and their house is wiped out. And everyone in Pakistan lives with that now. In Hawaii, I was just with last week a couple who were in Hawaii for the uh, alert that just happened and who believed for some 38 minutes that their world was about to disappear. In other words, they experienced what all humans on Earth have lived with for 60 to 70 years since then. I lived at 87 for 14 years in a world where no one had conceived of nuclear fission. That was that world. There was a moment when the, well, our history, as I say, was divided into three parts. The before the bomb was dropped, after the bomb exploded, which is us ever since then, and 53 seconds, when life was going on absolutely as before, people were not diving into air raid shelters, they were living their life, and they were looking around and they were doing anything that they often did at 8.15, walking to school, walking past gardens, lying in bed with their wife or their husband at that point. And that period when, in fact, it was too late, but they didn't know it, couldn't know it, was somewhat longer than people realize. It doesn't sound long. I'm going to ask you to do what I've asked a couple times before because it's a very interesting experience. I'm going to ask you to shut your eyes in a few seconds and imagine that you're in Japan eating breakfast, lying with your spouse, walking to school, seeing flowers. Now, close your eyes if you will, and I'll tell you when 53 seconds have passed. Now, 
longer than you thought, wasn't it? So had you been in Hiroshima in a forest like this, you would have seen the green trees during that period, could have picked a flower. A child could have been conceived in that period pretty easily, might even have survived. A lot of life goes on, meaning what I draw from it, every minute we have here is precious. Everything is at stake. We don't know if it's too late to keep those trees from dying in a nuclear winter within a year of an explosion, whether it's too late. We don't know that it is. And that means we each of us have the opportunity as living humans to do what we can to postpone that, to avert it, to make it less likely forever. And that is worth doing. And as a matter of fact, I don't think that it is very likely, as things are going, that we will have another 73 years without the full-scale nuclear war. I think it's unlikely. But it's not impossible. No one can prove that it's too late to postpone that or avert it. And no price, no individual price, is too high to pay to avert that in the way of whistleblowing, in the way of resistance, what we're doing now, in the way of urging people at Livermore and in the, in the White House and everything else to do what could have been done on the Titanic for hours after the warnings had been received, and that is demand a change in course, which is what we need. Thank you. Daniel Ellsberg. And yes, after the rally ended, out of the more than 150 participants, 41 risked arrest at the lab's west gate. They were cited and released. The group included Daniel Ellsberg. Finally, we hear these moving words from someone who is a hibaksha, a person who lived through the horror of the nuclear bomb being dropped on Hiroshima. Setsko Thurlow, survived the atomic blast which demolished her school and killed its other students, and has lived to work with ICANN, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, on the campaign to pass the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Here are her comments upon passage of this historic treaty on July 7, 2017. Delegates, NGO colleagues, dear friends, I never thought I would see this moment. I would like to share my gratitude for the exceptional work and dedication of everyone who has put their brains and their hearts into these treaty negotiations. I'm grateful to you, Madam President, for your leadership and the UN Secretariat, the delegations and NGOs devoted to moving us ever closer to the goal of the total elimination of nuclear weapons. As we gather in our celebration of this extraordinary achievement, let us pause for a moment 
to feel the witness of those who perished in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Both at that time in August 1945 and over these 72 years, hundreds of thousands of people Each person who died had a name. Each person was loved by someone. I've been waiting for this day for seven decades. And I am overjoyed that it has finally arrived. This is the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons. I remember back in 2014 when many of us met in Nayarit, Mexico. The conference chair said this is a point of no return we will not return to the failed nuclear deterrence policies. We will not return to funding nuclear violence instead of human needs. We will not return to irreversibly contaminating our environment. We will not continue to risk the life of future generations. To the leaders of the countries across the world, I beseech you, if you love this planet, you will sign this treaty. Nuclear weapon has always been immoral. Now they are also illegal. Together, let us go forth and change the world. I thank you. Hibaksha Setsko Thurlow, speaking immediately after the passage of the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which took place on July 7, 2017. The short film from which this audio is taken, entitled If You Love This Planet, is a beautiful animation by Amber Cooper Davis, which perfectly complements Ms. Thurlow's words. This deeply moving piece is available on the ICANW.org website and will be linked on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 372. Activist shout-out! An update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. And yes, launch date is now set definitely for Thursday, August 16, 2018. By buying the book on that day, you will help me with the ranking on Amazon, which will help the book's visibility and the ability to get more people to notice it. So please mark your calendars now, Thursday, August 16, and we'll have more details on the launch next week. Here's today's final thought. After the profound, sobering truths 
shared by today's speakers on the anniversary of the start of our atomic horrors. I can't think of anything meaningful of my own to add, so I'll leave you with a quote from the man who inadvertently started this whole chain reaction of events that led us to this moment, Albert Einstein. He said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 7, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, doonrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, kpbs.org, lubbockonline.com, try-cityherald.com, ktnv.com, thestate.com, wallstreetjournal, oswegocountytoday.com, wen.co.za in South Africa, truthdig.com, indaily.com, thebulletin.org, icanw.org, mainichi.jp, dailymail.co.uk, nhk.or.jp, the soul-dead cubicle drones who ate the baby and grind out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a great big shout-out to all of you Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. We are in 123 countries on six continents and counting, along with a big welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad I am on this journey with you as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Special thanks this week to Genta Yoshikawa, who videotaped the entire rally at the Livermore Labs for nonukesaction.wordpress.com and thus provided the audio of Daniel Ellsberg. Genta has posted the entire rally up on YouTube, and we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, number 372. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018. Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. Reminding you that, as Hiroshima survivor Setsuko Thurlow said upon accepting the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, the nuclear arsenal represents a self-destruct button for the human race. If that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. <laughs>